Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities for IPv6 Buzz and other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. Uh, if you've got something really cool working with v6, we definitely want to hear about it. We'd love to have you on to, to, to talk through it. I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Caffeine and Scott Hogue, and today we're going to take a little bit of a break and do some catch up and, and do some answering of of listener questions. So let's sort of jump in and, and do that. Hey guys, by the way. Hey, hey. Hi. Yeah, we have a pretty full mailbox. We haven't checked the mail in a while. <laughs> yeah, Shame on us. Clogged up. But uh, we got a couple questions here, and uh, let's see here. There was there was a question in regards to our, our last episode, actually, where uh, Scott had made a, a comment around some global unicast address stuff and about being globally routable. I think this was just probably more of a misunderstanding in regards regards to that, because I, I just remember it differently than what the question actually was, which was around uh, suggested that global unicast addresses do not have to be globally routable, but merely well-formed, which I think we all know. Yeah, I think I was I was thinking inside of my head about the use case of an organization getting an allocation of global unique addresses, you know, using them when they communicate to the internet, but then also having a part of that that's for maybe some sequestered, isolated, out-of-band administrative network that might be isolated and right. doesn't talk to either the rest of the enterprise internal network or doesn't talk to the internet. It's they've taken a block of their global unique address space and put it in this isolated environment as an enclave. It's not globally routed. A portion of their address space is not globally routed. Let's say they they got a, a slash 32 allocation. They're advertising the entire slash 32 to their multiple upstream peers mm -hmm. to the internet, but maybe they've broken off a 48, a slash 48, for this particular application. It's still part of their global unique address space, but it's just been set aside for this private purpose. So right. you wouldn't have to use ULA for that. You could use global unicast address. So I think that's what I was thinking. I probably said it in a way that didn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's the impression I had. I mean, it, and, and just to clarify for everyone, just because you have a global, global unicast address, right, a well-formed <laughs> global unicast address does not mean that you have to route it on the public, you know, internet mm -hmm. um, at all. In fact, you could take your entire 32 and not make it accessible on the on the global internet and uh, you could still advertise it, but doesn't mean you actually have to route any of your traffic through there. Mm -hmm. So there, there is a distinction just because it's globally unique, right? Uh, that global unicast address is globally unique by definition. You still get all those characteristics of the address space. You just don't necessarily have to use it globally on the internet for everything you do. So you could Mm -hmm. You could partition your network in any in any fashion that you want for management purposes, for security domain controls, for specific you know sub use cases, uh, whatever other logical abstraction you want to do. Or you can firewall between all of them and only allow your maybe you build the equivalent of an internal resource space that doesn't actually go out to the to the public internet, but maybe it goes through a proxy. Right? There's there's all sorts of different ways to sort of carve that up and think about it. Yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, I've seen you know server you know, hybrid converged, hyper converged infrastructure use link local multicast addresses for discovering different devices in the in that rack. Mm -hmm. You've seen that you can use IPv6 for things like ILO and DRAC and Pixie Boot now. I saw a note a article the other day Pixie Boot supports IPv6 only. Yeah. 
supports IPv6. So you could mm-hmm. use IPv6 in these out-of-band management environments for your, your system administration. Is that is that link local though only, or, or are we talking? No, well, they can use global addresses. Yeah, there. And, and so I guess that's where, I guess I would urge a little bit of caution here because we have, this is a topic that's come up a lot lately where we've talked about the prefix uh, policy table in terms of on the host or on the server, which IPv6 address gets used as a source and a destination. And, and I guess I would be like a little nervous that, that all of these stacks that are out there that have like, say with, you know, with the pixie boot, like that's a pretty new ad, right? I mean, they, that, that hasn't been around for very long. There's a lot of applications for which IPv6 is sort of like new. Um, we've been waiting for it. It's like, Hey, hurry up and implement this. Having said that, uh, do do we have confidence that they're handling all the different address types, you know, in a, in a, in a logical and a way that conforms with the RFC or is it, you know, something where we have to really rigorously test it? So, you know, I, I don't, I don't have these concerns so much when I'm just dealing with a, an operating system on the edge of the network or, you know, a Cisco router, Arista yeah. or whatever, but, but these just, you know, sort of, uh, stacks that are a, a little further out and a little less tested operationally. I just wonder, I just wonder about that. Yeah, you probably have to upgrade the firmware, your BIOS on your server storage system, you know, to mm-hmm. get it to use that new you know, IPv6 protocol with Pixie. Yeah, I guess the larger issue, again, is just not to beat the dead horse that we've talked about so much on the podcast recently, but just the prefix preference policy table in terms of v6 addresses you know it's like i want to be able to say yeah just get down with your bad self and use whatever range that you want to <laughs> use in the lab or you know it's because it's, it's all the same right i mean it's a global unicast or ula just in terms of uh, yeah that you can configure it on the device but it, it really depends on the application and how that's going to behave so i don't know it's just another thing to think about that that I, maybe yeah, the, of course yeah. it's bad enough that you know v4 and v6 have different properties but then not all v6 is created equal yeah exactly <laughs> and you, you have to have a little sophistication there and, and know a little bit about the different address types and how they're going to behave in that regard yeah i think that's fair I, I i would definitely be more nervous around certain you know certainly like things like ula with something like pixie boot versus you know before and like do they do the right things so I, I would agree with you on that one but i think if you just stick with global unicast addresses uh, as a general rule of thumb hard to go wrong right yeah i feel like you're much safer in that space in that space than dealing with other other things outside of just knowing the link local behavior right i share that yeah. false sense of security <laughs> <laughs> just, i want to encourage that false sense of security yeah, that's right. <laughs> use gua just use it. It's that's what it's there for. Just use it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I, I think we all we all stand in, in common unison around that one. Mm-hmm. Did we put that one to bed? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we clarified it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. All right, and let's see. Second question was uh, it was only addressed to Scott and Tom, so apparently I'm I, I don't count on this one, so I'm <laughs> not allowed to answer. <laughs> so, Really enjoyed the IPv6 Buzz podcast, despite being on the software side of the house, mostly ERPN and Microsoft 365. And one of the topics I follow closely is the zero trust architecture. And he's been doing, he's apparently been doing quite a bit of work around zero trust and, um, you know, sort of wanted to know, you know, what the thoughts are around zero trust and, and, and where things are at. Yeah, with yeah, the, where does the Venn diagram between zero trust and IPv6 overlap? Exactly. You know, well, maybe some of the limitations, maybe what what vendors support. There are lots of zero trust security vendors out there. 
all many security vendors have zero trust washed <laughs> their products, uh, <laughs> but they may or may not have IPv6 support in all of those new capabilities. But backing up a little bit, you could use, you know, you could leverage the the plentiful amount of IPv6 address space to to create, just like in the previous question, to create enclaves, micro-segmentation, host isolation. You've got a lot of address space that you can use in a variety of ways, in some interesting ways uh, for zero-trust networking. We talked about assigning an entire slash 64 to a server in and of itself. Yep, here you know, it came. So <laughs> software could be used inside, right. you know, containers could be isolated. You could use IPv6 with Spiffy and and Calico and other, you know, other techniques to isolate and secure which containers can talk to each other with a policy. You could have different routing domains and overlays all separated, all using, you know, V6 global addresses, but separated from each other but not have to reuse RFC 1918 address space in every one of the overlays. There wouldn't be any NAT. You wouldn't have to do NAT as part of your zero trust architecture between all these boundaries and borders. So you might have better ability to enforce policy based on the real address that the client might be using. Yeah, from my naive perspective on zero trust, because I'm not a security guy, I'm not sure why I was included on the on the listener's <laughs> request for information from from me. But from my, I'll, I'll offer this naive perspective from the outside, which is that I, I I wonder if some of the problems that you know zero trust networking solves security as a security function, if some of that is predicated on on assumptions based on on how IPv4 works and the reliance on NAT and the reliance on RFC 1918 and that you know there there's this new operational model or several new operational models that haven't even really been you know considered in terms of what IPv6 all the things that you just pointed out Scott related to you know just even this the simple fact of the abundance of non-overlapping address space like how many additional problems does that allow you to solve and have the the zero trust practitioners, you know, incorporated that into the, you know, I know I saw IPv6 on a zero trust marketing PowerPoint deck at some point, but, you know, does that mean they've, they've fully taken advantage of what's there? One, one critical aspect and a foundational element of zero trust networking is identity, you know, and putting that person, that place, that computing node in a place in time with an address connected to a topology. And when we use IPv4, we we have so much NAT. So you don't really have a good sense or have a good feeling that that address is authentic or who really is that end node. But now with IPv6, you could have more guaranteed, oh, that was the address, the, the prefix and the interface identifier that's been given to that device and that user has authenticated, and now they use that address everywhere, and we can track it and we can enforce policy based on that address, and it doesn't change and it doesn't need to be natted. There could be benefits there. There could also be ways to use the interface identifier to uniquely identify a device. You form that in some way to validate that the that, that user on that device has been authenticated. I've seen solutions out there from different vendors of taking the user identity, their two-factor authentication, and part of their TPM chip and building that interface identifier that uniquely identifies that host Hmm. for purposes of these authenticated access methods like zero trust. 
They're interesting. IPv6 gives you that address space, that that large interface identifier to do some real creative things that we can't do in IPv4 because of the limited address space. Right. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, but I, Zero Trust is also, as an initiative, is is pretty big for distributed workforce, right? Not necessarily within your campus-controlled enterprise environment, which means probably more than likely got some sort of remote agent that's running on people's laptops or whatever else that they're using as a mobile device, which means, in theory, you could be using your own address space to allocate out of that you know, to that zero trust device to put that uniqueness to travel with it. Um, oh, so then, oh, if only we had deployed mobile IPv6. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go there. Um, <laughs> but, I think I just did. But, <laughs> I love mobile IPv6. I've been looking for an excuse to use <laughs> for <laughs> 20 years. Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, it's, and I, I mean, obviously it's, it's, I don't even see this as a VPN thing as much more just like to Scott's point more about identity thing of like, yeah, we've got enough address space. We can uniquely identify things. So as we assign that agent out, we know it's associated with that device set. It stays with it. And we just inject the route as an overlay uh, to, to get access to it uh, as sort of a next hop. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's on your, home residential Comcast is the next stop to reach it, whatever. You just do the specific uh, entry sets to get to it. I don't know. I it's I think Zero Trust is going to have a whole set of architecture changes that happen in the near future anyway, simply because with what you know the pandemic has done in terms of cloud architectures and how people are thinking about what is actually trustworthy within their network, I think it's changing pretty dramatically. So I, I, I don't know if V6 or V4 cares about that as much. Right, um, as as much as how the identity and the services are actually provisioned on top of it, so I think this is it, it's it's one of those things where V six becomes a um, a granular piece of data that's sort of useful and interesting for a zero trust model, but I don't think it's the only thing that zero trust is hanging their hat on in terms of you know capabilities to understand what the endpoint is, whether that's V six or V four. I think V six is probably more useful than V four is in that particular use case, but I still probably wouldn't trust an address. Versus like someone's full identity and you know multi-factor authentication and a bunch of other things that go along with it, right? Yeah, you're not so, using the address as a form of authentication. You're using SAML authentication right. and a token and yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I, 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 it's just my gut feeling. I think that to Scott's earlier point, just knowing who actually can support it, I think that's a much bigger deal than. Mm-hmm than anything else out of it. It's just making sure the platform, whoever you go with for a zero trust basis actually has support for V6 so that you don't get caught in that situation of, you know, whatever VPN breakout equivalent for zero trust. I don't know what that is. <laughs> zero trust breakout. I don't, I don't know how you describe that, right? For applications that might go directly to, you know, whatever Microsoft 365, as opposed to going through whatever proxy service or cloud service, you're supposed to be, you know, putting them through a CASB or something, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. If you're using any of those s- Solutions for micro segmentation, isolation, zero trust that in, that includes some software that runs on that server and then enforces policies based on that. And it's a it's an agent, you know, that runs in the at the driver level of that server, whether it's physical or virtual or in the cloud. Ask that vendor, hey, what what happens when my server is connected to a dual protocol network? Can I enforce policies? for V4 and V6 equally. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Well, cool. I think we covered that one. Uh, next question was was around some bigger design architectures. Its uh, comments are uh, working in a company with 280 locations in about 50 countries, which sounds like a pretty big network, and, and got a lot of apparently checkpoint firewalls and 
lots of internet breakout and a pretty complex uh, you know, checkpoint encryption configuration. And, and they've got a decent sized amount of IPv4 space today, obviously, and, and obviously lots of RFC 1918 space in addition. And just had the general question of any hints to moving to an internal IPv6 you know, deployment and, and what, what do they think are going to be the road roadblocks, hiccups, you know, things that should be red flags that they might be concerned with or things that they might have to take into consideration as they're thinking about uh, IPv6 in, in a large, large network like that. So I, I'm going to I'm going to punt to someone else to get us started. Yeah, I would think uh, a really critical and this may may be too obvious to even mention, but I'll mention it anyway. It's like the, the the consistency, especially with it sounds like there's a lot of security domains in this network. And and, you know, we we tend to uh, to want to take advantage of of IPv6's abundant space to do address planning along the lines that really facilitate summarization and, you know, security zones, security edges by having consistently sized prefixes. So, and th- would this would be a scenario where, you know, I don't, I don't know, they say they have an abundant amount of a V6 space and they're a ripe uh, net LIR, which suggests they, you know, might've gotten a larger allocation, but they would want to make sure they have a large enough allocation to keep all of those boundaries consistently sized uh, from, you know, and, and again, maybe they're not consistently sized from their actual deployment footprint, but from an operational model standpoint, making them consistently sized greatly simplifies the security policy. And so that would, that would sort of be the first, first thing I would want to follow up on related to this, this uh, sort of request for information. It seems, well, they say they're operating in 50 countries and they're using a lot of site to site VPNs between sites. Some may use MPLS, some may use internet. Some sites may end up being using, you know, direct internet access. So, if they're in 50 countries, Tom, should they get allocations in other regions to keep things, keep other addresses in region? Yeah, it's a good question. And it, it comes up all the time in this type of scenario, right? So the guidance that we generally give around this is that that we we haven't seen difficulty with uh, with supporting out of region announcements. So if I have a you know nice big block from from Ripe or a nice big block from Aaron or any of the other RIRs. Uh, theoretically, I should be able to use that pretty much on a global basis. Um, and the, the caveats there are that we, you know, we've always seen a lot more funny business in terms of consistent routing in the Asia Pacific region, just because long haul is so expensive there. And there's a lot of, you know, sort of game playing with in the Certainly that's been the case in the V4 space where, you know, forcing traffic to use certain through points, which means that you get inconsistent announcements. And so you, you could have a provider there saying, well, they're going to put their foot down and they're going to, this is a ripe block and we're not going to announce it. And so what we generally say is make sure you've covered your behind and have allocations for those other regions that you're doing business mm-hmm. in, in case you have to number into them. But, but you may tentatively assume that you'll be able to use an out of region announcement um, in most places. Uh, you know, and it's it's not a trivial question, right, Scott? I mean, you you bring up an important point because it, it could be the difference between having a really simple routing policy based on one very large block, or having to you know balkanize things and have multiple IPv6 blocks in different regions that you have to manage. And uh, so, yeah, it's definitely you want to do your homework in that regard. And uh, and if you've encountered difficulty. And, you know, in any of the regions with your V4 routing, then, you you know, you may not want to assume that everything's going to just get better with V6. Uh, you, you may want to hedge your bets and make sure you've got a, a, a block to use in those regions. 
Yeah, the question also says, how do I bring IPv6 internal to my organization? Because they may have, you know, global address space that they got from an RIR in a region. They might get provider assigned address space from a direct internet access provider for some of their locations. But then they're building a tunnel back to headquarters or to a cloud. And so then they would need, you know, they would want to use their global address space inside their locations and over the tunnels, but the outside of the tunnel, if it ends up using the provider assigned address space, that could be a problem. They need providers to be able to accept their an, a slash 48 announcement for that site. So if they got a slash 48, enough address space to advertise a slash 48 from each one of these sites to that provider, now, they would have 280 slash 48s disaggregated. They would disaggregate their block into 280 slash 48s. They'd also be running a lot of BGP. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's desirable for a lot of jobs. And the, the alternative, the flip side is, is that they take 280, you know, uh, provider assigned address ranges and accept them <laughs> into their mm -hmm. into their backbone, right? And make them routable on, uh, on on the backside so that they can get access for whatever's being provisioned there. Mm -hmm. And then if they change service providers at any one of those locations, that means they'll be doing a, you know, some readdressing. Yeah. You got to be careful that you don't turn your, your corporate network into a transit network on... <laughs> Yeah, I don't see what the problem is about just, you know, opening up DFZ, DFZ, man, put it all on the net. <laughs> this is zero trust architecture we're going for. <laughs> Completely untrusted. Yeah, untrust everything. Yeah. Just, just become an internet service. We all become internet service providers. That's how it works, right? A career limiting move to, to see your AS in the middle of a... <laughs> in the middle of a path. Yes, the moment you see that, you're like, oh, that's not good. Uh, unless, of course, you're a service provider, in which case is probably something you want to see. But yeah, I I, I think this is one of those interesting cases. So like 280 locations, 50 countries, that's a big network. You're you're dealing with a lot more complexity in, in regards to what you want to do there. And I think with anything, right, you you have to start with a good plan. I say, I'd say more than anything, you want to sit down and, and figure out what your plan is actually going to be. Sit down and, and work through your design and architectures, work through your limitations and and sort of put those in all in the right sort of categories to understand what your constraints are for how you're going to build and then and then start working your way through that problem set. And usually your architecture will fall out of that, probably handle 95, 98% of what you got what you need to cover from a design and build perspective. You're always going to have those one-offs throw a monkey wrench into into uh, your design. Yeah, but. the other thing I would say I would caution against too, it's like it's tempting if it's like, oh, we got a small deployment footprint in APAC and so maybe we only need a 48 or a 40 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. And it's really easy to 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 suddenly realize, you know, at 18 months or two or five years down the road that your your routing policy and how you've designed the network has to be drastically different. The sizes of the prefixes that you're using, the operational model that you're following and 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 using you can really cause yourself some serious headaches. And so it, mm -hmm. again, it's not worth it. Just try to get consistent size allocation in every region that you're, you're operating in. You know, if I have a slash 32 and, and ripe, even if I have a small deployment footprint in and AP Nick, uh, you know, go ahead and try to get that larger block just to, to keep things operationally consistent. Yeah. And it, it gives you flexibility. You want yeah. that flexibility later down the road. If your business changes and all of a sudden all your business switches from, you know, ripe to AP Nick, right. Because yep. of, other external factors that you don't control as a network operator, uh, as a network engineer for that company, you want to you want to be able to adapt, and you can't adapt if you're if you bound 
your constraint model so so closely. And I think that's, you know, getting back to the three of us talking about V4 thinking, that comes back to that whole V4 thinking, right? Oh, everything's about conservation. We've got to conserve and use the least amount of resources. It's like, nope, nope, get that out of your head, yeah. <laughs> right? Let's go ask for what's appropriate. And I, I don't know if there's much more we could answer on that one because honestly, it's such a big, vast open space of, of things to ponder that I think it'd, it'd be difficult to cover that. In, in, Other than to say we're delighted that uh, a large network is is deploying IPv6. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, for sure. That's I mean, that we are we are pretty thrilled that uh, someone's taking it on and at that size and breadth because it's it seems to be more and more common. We're seeing bigger and bigger organizations that are that are popping up and talking about it, just like we had Wells Fargo on the last show, you know, talking about what they're doing. It's it's great to see that other large organizations are taking it seriously and starting to starting to trying to figure it out. All right. Well, I think I think that's good as a good stopping point in terms of in terms of listener questions. We apologize to everyone that we haven't gotten back <laughs> on the questions super fast, but it's uh, it is what it is. We we'll get a chance to to do those uh, in between the the shows that we have with guests. Um, so uh, we love all the feedback. So please feel free. You can post up on the packet pushers with uh, with their follow up page and just go ahead and, and send us send us comments and feedback. We love to hear from you. We really deeply appreciate all our all our audience and listeners for for sending stuff in. It's it's really cool when we actually get those messages. So we try not to ignore them, but we try to gather them up to be able to get a whole entire show together. Yeah, keep keep the questions and comments coming, and we'll address them on future shows. Definitely, we do want to hear from you. Well, unlike V six, we've run out of space for this podcast. Thanks to all of you folks for sending questions in. <laughs> you can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter at IPv6 Buzz. You can also hit up each one of us on Twitter. Uh, Scott is uh, at Scott Hogue. Uh, Tom is at IPv6 Tom. And I'm at E. Horley. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz podcast. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. And if you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. Hopefully you're listening on Spotify too. And... Um, you know, if you like this podcast, we recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day to Cloud, and and the Network Break podcasts. They're all great technical content over packetpushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet, the IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.